welcome back to the show that doesn't believe that any man is an island and nor should a beer be. Radio Bruce News, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Peter Professor Pilsner Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. <laughs> g'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. That was that was a very professional intro. You'd almost think that we were just amateurs sitting around on a pair of laptops in different states doing a, a chat by Skype and just, you know, holding up an iPhone and doing a voice memo recording of this thing. Well, you know, that that would uh, be hamster in the wheel sort of stuff, but we're we're professionals. We know what we're doing. Having said that, I do like the the handcrafted feel of um of Radio Bridge News. It's not it's not too slick and it's not sort of overly professional. So it's it's uh, approachable and perhaps even sessionable. It is a little bit like a craft beer, isn't it? it you know, it, it, it's, it's a little bit variable, but always good quality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, surprises from one batch to the next, but always, yeah. And and you know that it's been made with heart. That's it. Now, Prof, you've been a busy man. You've been a very busy man. You've been clocking up all sorts of uh, travel miles. I have, yeah. I've been a very busy boy. I was lucky enough, um, as we intimated in the last episode with uh, talking to Scotty Vincent, that I was on my way down courtesy of the lovely people at Cascade to two of the uh, Hot Products Australia Bushy Park Estates to participate in the uh, harvesting of three new experimental, up till now experimental varieties. Uh, those three, we then went and uh, watched them processed and popped into bags. Um, while we had lunch, the hops made their way down to the brewery. After lunch, we made our way down to the brewery and we all got to tip the final hop in to the, uh, the brew for this year's First Harvest Ale, which will come out in uh, early May. It's a great experience down there, isn't it? Just even walking through the rows of hops, and you know, both you and I have both been down to Red Hill before, who do the annual you know, hop pitch. Yep. Um, yep. And they've got you know, uh, three, ten rows of hops. Ten rows, three varieties. Yep. And uh, you know, and, and that is fantastic. You know, people sitting around picking hops, hand picking hops, and having a few beers while they do it wonderful experience but there is something about being in acres and acres and acres of hops that you know just it i i know i've said it before i would say it uh to the ad nauseum that it really reminds you that beer is in fact an agricultural product it's not factory made although it can be but at its heart it's a it's an agricultural product it is, and it's interesting and it's it, it is of the fields and it's um and look it, it really does ground you a little bit and gives you an appreciation for just how many and look, I don't mean to pick on wine, but if you think about you've got a grape growing on a tree, essentially, if I pick that grape, I squeeze it into a glass and leave it, it will become wine. So there's there's a lot, and I don't mean to dis, disparage the um, the skill of the, uh, the either the viticulturalist or the enologist, uh, but it's what I'm essentially saying is that ingredient is pretty much how the, determines how the, the end product will turn out. When you think about beer, you've got the hops, you've got the malt, you've got the, uh, you know, the, the wheat and whatever else you've got. Um, you've got the yeast. And then you've got all the, you know, that there are sort of, I guess, three different producers in terms of the, you know, the brewery, the, um, the hop farmer and the maltsters and the malt farmers who all have to do their job just right. And even then, it's still up to the skill, I guess, of the brewer to get to make sure that all those elements are just right and then all the you know uh, checks and balances are made to make sure that the you know the beer comes out drinkable and, and and as intended you know it hits its marks and you can't sort of just sit back and go oh, i didn't quite work out what it was but we'll just call it, that's just the 2012 vintage so what you're saying is that uh, wine is a accident of nature beer is the uh, skill of the maker 
Well, yes, exactly. Of, of many makers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, the um, good wine is down to the grape or the ground and uh, good beer is down to the brewer in conjunction with Very good. the suppliers. You can, yeah. I'm going to put that on a book or something. It's going to go on next year's Critics' Choice. That's the that's the back cover quote. Either, <laughs> either that or just a big you know, two fingers with up yours wine. I don't know. We'll work on it. Is that a nice segue yeah. to, into the next topic? Because the Critics' Choice book is go for just, it. it's just about to come out. As we are recording it is. this, we've started the countdown. This countdown has begun, and the second beer has just been revealed 13 minutes ago. Should we tell people? Because we can. Well, really, by the time you I'm pretty sure up, by the yeah, exactly. <laughs> the countdown will be over, and you'll be working. And the book will be years. into its second print. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Cooper's Strong Vintage Ale, 2011. Uh, got a gig as the number 11, as chosen by 40, 39 uh, respected beer judges from around the, the country. Beer critics. Well, 37 and you and I. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, making up the numbers. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so well done. And, and, and a, a, a very nice, I just, I, I'm loathe to use a word such as serendipitous, but it is a, a serendipitous occurrence that it happens to be uh, the Cooper's Vintage Ale 2011 on the day that we are going to talk to Tim Cooper. Yes, and as everybody knows, we couldn't possibly have planned that because <laughs> that that level of planning because is just beyond us. we don't plan anything. But secondly, <laughs> um, and like, in case you can't tell, listeners, uh, up to now after 18, 20 episodes, whatever we've done, quite often Matt and I, as we are doing now, are recording the intro and the outro after we've spoken to the guests. So we don't mention, uh, you know, congratulate. It, that's why we don't congratulate Tim on uh, the the fine placing of the uh, Cooper's, Cooper's Vintage Ale because we didn't know it at that stage and um, now we're talking to him, but we've already talked to him. Now, apart from uh, being heavily involved in media um, obligations to promote the Critics' Choice, you've also been doing a little bit of uh, cider blending. Yes, Matt. I, uh, well, I, 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 I kind of put one foot in, into the dark side and uh, did a little bit of cider blending. Uh, to put a little bit of context to at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, which is a very good festival and hopefully one day can grow up to be as popular as Good Beer Week. Um, uh, had a thing at Fed Square. Uh, 50 people came along and learned how to, to blend, to, to make their own uh, cider. And this isn't, as um, Ben Krauss from Bridge Road Brewers uh, loves to call it, uh, Fizzy Goon, which is the carbonated apple juice with ethanol that seems to be flooding the market uh, amongst the real ciders at the moment. Uh, this is proper actual fruit wines that are then blended with, uh, and we're talking, so we're talking passion fruit, blueberry, raspberry, uh, strawberry, all uh, fruits that are either, uh, you know, bought in as fruit or that are actually grown uh, on a farm down on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, Wayne, the, the winemaker down there, basically crushes the fruit, adds the yeast, adds the sugar, uh, all things that he needs to do, uh, and ferments it into uh, wines and ciders. Uh, so I got to go down there just to do a one-on-one because I wasn't able to go last Saturday to Beer Deluxe for the, uh, the official one and had a ball. It was it, It's really opened my eyes to cider. So keep an eye out, listeners, for um, a piece on Brews News in the next couple of days uh, about my experience on the dark side. I still love beer best. Don't, don't, you know. And as a side issue, it's also quite relevant to Australian Brews News and Radio Brews News because a lot of the brewers are now embracing, uh, you know, offering if you like a you know extension of their brand to be able to say to people you know come in for a beer but if you're, if you're not a big beer drinker we also have a you know a cider that we either uh, you know 
have a control in making or we have someone make for us under our direction or we directly you know, actually make ourselves, uh, which is kind of, I think, bringing more people to the world of beer as well. Do you think? Do you, it's something a lot of people say, but I just don't know because it is such a different flavour um, to beer. Um, that it, it's, I, I, you know, I don't know if it is bringing people towards beer. Um, I reckon if, if, if Booney's over beer, I reckon we could get him onto cider rather than, um, you know, well, Canadian, Club, Canadian and Club and Dry in, in a, in a can, can has a lot more money to uh, <laughs> induce Booney to, to do it. Um, so, and, yeah, fair know, point. Oh, yeah, we, we won't go into that because we, we get... maybe, maybe we can get. We can we can maybe get uh, Ian Thorpe as a, a a brand ambassador for craft beer because um, apparently he's not doing much now in the next. Well, year he up. also you know expects the government to subsidise it when he dives into any uh, any liquid. So uh, I, I don't know that craft beer is exactly going to get him. Um, <laughs> just hang on, listen. I'm just going to get the. Oh no 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 no! I, I, gee, I couldn't give it. Listen, hey, no, I, I have to tell you, we do get we got I got some feedback. Uh, during the week with a really great suggestion. Somebody was listening back to the Corey Crooks, no, to the Scott Vincent and sent me a, uh, a text as he was listening to it. So shout out to uh, Chris from Melbourne University who said, um, I, I love the way that Matt used the expression, not uh, used the expression WTF. Um, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, great, no worries. And he said, now it, in, it gave him the idea that perhaps you could then, uh, we could have a little segment on Brews News I... called What the Froth, which is sort of like, you know, where we demystify or explain some, you know, element of the beer world or a current issue or something like that. And I thought that'd be great. I, 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 I think I've just found a new executive producer for Australian Brews News with uh, ideas like that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll do that. Um, for next time. So listeners, if you've got, if, if there's any aspect of uh, beer and brewing that you would like answered, um, otherwise I'll just throw it up as a uh, what the froth um, for uh, yeah, WTF for uh, what's it all about. Um, yeah, and, and come, there's an issue every week. Well, my soapbox this week um, is, uh, I led with it, is a little bit about the Forex uh, Island. Um, that uh, What yeah. the froth is going on with that? <laughs> Well, it's, and I say at the outset, it's really hard to have a go at something like this without sounding um, like you're... Prudish or... Um, well, yeah, I'd like you're prudish or you're un-Australian or you, you want beer to be you know, pretentious and wanky, as I've been accused of in, in the comments a little bit this week. Um, and it's not that at all. Um, and the thing that amazes me about this is that you have these big brewers um, who have specialised brand teams and they don't actually give a crap, um, as I understand it, about the wider company. You know, they have a sole focus on their brand. And if you're the Forex Gold brand guy, your interest is Forex Gold and you just want to give it you know, X percentage market share um, bump. But if you suggest to them that the stuff that they're doing to promote their brand is devaluing the overarching beer brand, you know, what people regard as being the value of beer, they look at you as if you're you're mad. And yet they will lecture you for hours, you know, they do doctorates or you know, masters of you know brand marketing where they learn about the value of 
the brand and what the brand attributes are. And if you read any of their annual reports, it's all about you know our brand and the value in our brand and what our brand stands for. But they just don't accept that beer itself has a brand and that they're devaluing it. And when I wrote about uh, the, the Forex Island, I pointed to recently... Um, I was able to get one of the local lifestyle, free lifestyle magazines to do a two-page spread about beer. And it was a, the, the journalist is um, a former MasterChef contestant who has a real sympathy for beer and has been pinch, uh, pitching uh, the idea of a beer story to the magazine for a while um, and has never got it up. And suddenly with the launch of the Beer Academy and all of the new little venues in Brisbane, they're able to do it. And yet the, the editor... Um, you know, gave her 300-word editorial when she writes about the lead story talking about Homer Simpson and beer. And, you know, I'm sure you find this, Pete, um, when you meet with journalists and you start talking about beer, and I don't think either of us necessarily do that in that um, overly pretentious way. Um, you know, you, no, and, you and I are very much about getting people thinking about beer and taking beer a little bit more seriously, but not taking themselves seriously as they do it. Mm. And yet beer has just such a bad image uh, globally. And if, if you speak to the people in the, 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 big brew, in, in the big breweries, they say, oh, well, you know, our sales were down last year because Brisbane had the floods. Or, you know, they were down the year before because the GFC. Um, you know, at the moment, they seem to be able to point to something every quarter or every year about the reason that their uh, beer sales are down. But yeah. beer is at its lowest level in 60 years, according to the Bureau of Statistics. And it's not just because a new generation has it finds beer too bitter um, and they are going for the sweet fizzy drinks or the ciders. It's also because people, you know, our society has moved on and people are looking for something that's a little bit more sophisticated or something that represents themselves. Now, you can get to a psychology degree on what that means and what that says about them, that they think that what they drink makes them look a certain way. That's fine. But it's a simple truth. And a lot of them don't want to be seen standing around drinking a beer because beer is seen as a yobbo element. And when you've got a campaign like this that is solely targeting blokes, and I, I raised this question and that was denied. Oh, we're not targeting blokes. You know, we're not. And yet the first three, if you Google Forex Island, the first three headlines, and I'll just call them up, are... So they're saying, we don't say anywhere that this is just a bloke's campaign. We're not saying anywhere that women can't go on to Forex Island. Um, and that's true. If you, if you go through it, it talks about mates and women can be mates. But if meaning is derived from the listener as opposed to what you say, um, then the first three headlines when you search uh, Forex Island are BMF and Holler Create, Man's Paradise, Forex Island. Bloke's Paradise, Heaven is Thy Name. Forex gold to lease out Ireland for men only. So even if you don't actually come out and say that, when every major newspaper in Australia reports Forex has created a men's only Ireland, either they're stupid, everybody that reads your media releases is stupid, or what you are doing is exactly that. You're pitching it at blokes and you're making it the you know a boorish, blokey drink. Um, and when you've got the biggest brand in the market, or soon to be the biggest brand in the market, that causes problems. I'll just draw that, breath there, Prof. And, uh, yeah. and that, folks, was our first episode of What the Prof? <laughs> um, but seriously, I, I, I'd love to... I, 
listeners out there, if you either uh, you know seen the the promotion for the the Forex Island, or if you pop over to Australian Brews News and check it out, I'd love your feedback on you know are we missing something? Is there you know is this kind of thing relevant? Is is Matt hit the mark? Are we being too taking it too seriously, or whatever? Or as Matt suggests, and I agree, does there doing this kind of advertising just kind of reinforces the stereotype of um, you know farting horses and burping frogs and chicks with the big tits in bikinis to sell beer, whereas you never see that sort of thing with with wines or ciders. It's all about lifestyle and it's all about everyone getting together and be, and not four blokes unsuccessfully trying to build a boat for six years. And it was not to them too, um, to two of the two of the guys um, from the boat builders. Um, they left some comments on your what, what, post, Matt. Was it actually them, or I don't know? But it was it was there and Jacko, or was there and Jono, or something like that? Which is you know what? what you yeah, mean? Jack Jacko and Wazza, and I think the others. Yeah, there's well, yeah, Tomo, Knackers, and Shags. Oh no, what about yeah, Jacko? Jack I, I, mean, I, I don't know, yeah. but you know, it, yeah, it's one of those things, and. Yes, I mean, I, look, I, I don't think outwardly the campaign is farting horses or anything like that, as Charlie Bamforth uh, likes to talk about. But a, a, as I said, if the message is drawn from the way people receive it, then even if it's not outwardly said, there is an obvious subtext that people are picking up on. Um, and at the end of the day, Matt, perception is reality. Perce- it, 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 it doesn't matter what you meant. If, if everybody who sees it thinks this is a bloke's you know, a getaway, and it's all about blokes and being blokey and drinking blokey beer and being blokey. Chances are, it's it's a blokey campaign. Yeah, and, and look, and that's the thing that it's it's not a problem because you know the majority of beers are drunk by blokes, so so there is that. And somebody, and I suspect uh, on Facebook there were some comments from a fellow who I, I suspect works for Lion Nathan, um, and we had a, a fairly good debate, and I'd refer listeners. Um, to go to the Brews News, uh, or, I think it's Oz Brews News on Facebook, um, Facebook. To, yep. to have a look at that. And um, to, to say that a campaign like this makes it blokey isn't to say that you need to have you know chick-friendly advertising or anything like that, because it's one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. And at, at the launch of the Forex Island, um, I had a great chat with uh, one of the Forex uh, marketing staff and we talked about some of these these issues, and I pointed out that you know if you look at the Summer Bright Lager National Campaign, which has been huge over summer, they don't make it focusing on women, and yet women feature prominently in the ads. It's a, it's a lifestyle um, brand, um, and you know men and women are equally represented, and it was a real inclusiveness, and apparently that's because. You know the the Gen Ys, the the, the under thirties, um, they are a lot less segregated you know socially the old stereotype that blokes are at the barbie women are in the kitchen at barbecues apparently doesn't apply to the the under 30s which is fantastic but you know to me a, a, a campaign like this um the if you look at this campaign is for the over 30s um, or the over 35s in fact one of the reasons that beer is declining amongst them um is because there are products that are seen as being more sophisticated and yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, 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 it's not just a flavour thing because the over 35s tend to, to like the uh, greater flavours, um, which is why Forex Gold appeals to that market and Forex Sunbright Lager appeals to under 30s. But anyway, look, I mean, that, that is by far, uh, you know. Take another, take another breath, Matt. It's a long enough soapbox, but yeah. Um, <laughs> let, let us know what you think, listeners. Uh, you know, does Matt have his head up his ass as usual? Um, 
or uh, you know, is is there a grain of truth in that WTF? Um, but uh, anyway, mate, we, we've got um, we, who, we, we, who are we chatting to today? <laughs> <laughs> we're speaking to Dr. Tim Cooper. Um, Tim Cooper, who is, you know, I, I said um, in an editorial this week that beer is full of good blokes. Uh, when we announced uh, John Cousins' uh, retirement. Um, Actually, that's someone who should, we should speak to again before he disappears. Um, yep. And yep. Uh, today we speak to another one, um, Tim Cooper. Uh, look, I'll, I'll link to a couple of stories about Tim Cooper um, that I've done. I've interviewed him a number of times, and he's the sort of bloke. He is, you know, the, the managing director of one of the largest breweries in Australia, and he's a very, very busy man. And he always says, "Oh, look, I, I can give you fifteen minutes for a quick interview." And an hour later, I'm sort of saying, oh, Tim, you said, you know, <laughs> you could only give me 15 minutes. And he goes, oh, that's okay. I've cancelled, you know, <laughs> that he wants to keep going. And he's, he's that sort of guy. And so uh, yeah. our interview is with him. And it started off being a 45-minute chat. And I think, um, listeners, you've got at least an hour ahead of you because uh, he certainly did push it out. And he talks, he's very honest, um, you know, very open. And uh, it's a fascinating talk. So if we haven't lost you yet, uh, we'll, <laughs> we're not going to lose you now because... Uh, we, we, we'll let's have a chat to Tim uh, Cooper and have a chat afterwards, Prof. Done. And yes, we're joined by Dr. Tim Cooper, who's the fifth generation Cooper, who is currently in control of the brewery. Tim Cooper, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thank you very much indeed, Matt, and uh, pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's, it's always lovely to, to, to talk. Um, there aren't too many brewers that can talk about being a fifth-generation brewer anywhere in the world, let alone uh, in Australia. How does that feel? It, it feels pretty good, but I, I must say we uh, had a visit from uh, a company from uh, Holland uh, not that long ago, and they were out um, doing a bit of a tour of Australia, and uh, these uh, two cousins, uh, Jan Rainier Swinkles and Frank Swinkles, come from a brewery called Bavaria, and they're seventh-generation uh, family brewers, which is a remarkable achievement. And there's also a family in Pennsylvania, I think, uh, that are a sixth-generation. I'm just trying to... The, the name's just escaping me at the moment. Yes. That's, that's are, you, are you thinking of Ying, Yingling? I'm thinking Yingling, of Yingling. Maybe. Yingling, that's, that's right. Yes, yes. You look, you've had... Uh, you, you, the, the company's had its challenges on its way to this, its 150th year. Um, but you've also had your uh, challenges just in the time that you've been uh, in the driver's chair. Yes. Well, uh, and the, the, big, the biggest one, of course, was uh, uh, fending off uh, uh, the uh, unwanted uh, approaches of Lion Nathan when they were uh, keen to buy us in 2005. And uh, uh, that ended up becoming a very uh, st stressful uh, affair in the sense that uh, there was a lot of legal action uh, involved. Um, but, of course, uh, we were always quite confident that uh, um, the whole affair wouldn't go anywhere because uh, the vast majority of the shareholders had said to us they didn't want to sell. So uh, when the vote was finally taken, as, uh, as you probably remember, Matt, uh, on December the 14th, 2005, uh, 93.4% uh, of the shareholders against 6.6% uh, voted um, in favour of changing the constitution to uh, remove the uh, preemptive right that Lyon had. So uh, 
it was a, it was a good result in the end, but it didn't uh, didn't occur without some agony along the way. In fact, I think the first time I interviewed you was just after you'd seen off the challenge. Yeah. And one of the questions that I asked you then was, uh, you know, with, with the rapid growth that Coopers had been enjoying uh, even back then, whether you saw yourselves as the largest of Australia's small brewers or the third of Australia's biggest brewers, and uh, you you were quite um, adamant that Coopers was the third uh, of the largest brewers. Um, these days, that you're Australia's biggest Australian-owned brewer. How <laughs> does that feel? <laughs> it feels very good, and uh, you know I've been saying to people we, uh, we we're delighted, and of course we got there by default uh, by virtue of uh, uh, Foster's selling to SAB Miller. But uh, uh, after you know, of course, in 2009, uh, Kieran fully completed the purchase of Lion. So, um, you know, nonetheless, despite getting there by default, um, we, we wear it as a badge of honour because uh, it represents a, a lot of hard work by the Cooper family over a, a number of generations. So, uh, and, and long may we remain in that position as uh, Australia's largest uh, owned brewery. Uh, it, 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 it sounds like you're describing yourself as the uh, Stephen Bradbury of Australian brewing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, you, you know uh, I, I think it becomes a more and more challenging in, environment, but it doesn't become any less interesting. And I think that's what um, you know motivates us each day to to uh, keep on doing uh, what we do, which is uh, focusing on the quality of the beer and thinking about who else we can sell it to. So uh, there's always something new to think about in this game. That's for sure, Matt. Now, one of the interesting things I've noticed, and it, it, it comes from that question a little bit, is if, if you are Australia's largest brewer, um, you know, where does that put you? I, I know that uh, you know, 10 years ago, um, if you look to just before the current upswing in, in, in brewing, um, the uh, uh, you know, Cooper's was, was widely regarded as a, you know, a great beer to have on in any hotel, and any hotel that had Cooper's sparkling or pale on was you know, almost regarded as a craft beer pub. That's probably not quite the the, the case anymore. Um, how how is Cooper's uh, dealing with the um, you know your, your growth and the, the perceptions of whether the brewery is still regarded as a craft brewery? Yeah, all good questions. I mean, I think uh, you know clearly where. We 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 discuss internally uh, a little bit whether you know we we are a craft brewery or a boutique brewery or are we a you know a, a substantial brewery. I think you know uh, I can remember being surprised uh, probably 15 years ago when I I learnt that in the US micro breweries are, are less than uh, half a million. Uh, hectolitres and I can remember thinking wow that puts us in the category of only being a microbrewery when I thought we were already a bit bigger than a microbrewery so to some degree it depends on your definition um, but of course from the point of view that our beer is naturally conditioned and you know each each uh, bottle is a uh, is a sort of fermentation in, in itself um, for the naturally conditioned ales I think you know we we for others around the world, we would be seen as a craft brewery in, in terms of doing something quite 
different and um, uh, something which involves quite a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, care and attention. Um, but on the, against that, you know, we're now above that sort of half million hectolitres where we're, uh, this year we should finish at uh, 650,000 hectolitres. So, um, you know, I, I think... Um, the answer is still evolving. You know, we we see ourselves as brewers. We see ourselves very much as as craft brewers, but without um, uh, having any sort of um, immediate contact with the, the beer itself. In the sense of, you know, we don't need to uh, move the beer around in any manual sense. When I first joined the brewery in 1990, we were still attaching rubber hoses like um, many of the winemakers do from one tank to another tank and then pumping pumping the beer for, uh, you know, via rubber hoses. And of course, that, those days are long since gone and everything uh, is moved around the brewery in stainless steel um, pipes with uh, automatic valves and so forth. Um, but nonetheless, we're... Um, uh, you know the, the the beauty of having had a very much hands-on background in the 1990s in terms of how and, and previously with with how the beer is made still makes one very conscious of you know what the um, uh, what the various aspects of the process are that sort of contribute towards making the product as it is. Your, your bottle conditioned beers were one of the things that um, beer lovers, uh, up until the time I'm talking about, were that was the thing that really made Coopers different. Um, more recently, you've introduced beers like 62 Pilsner and the uh, Coopers Clear. Clear. Um, yeah. And last year, I believe Coopers Clear was 8% of your sales. So it, it's it's growing. Um, uh, it's a growing uh, portion of your of your range. How hard will it be as beers like uh, the sort of non-traditional lagers start to become more and more important to you? Um, how hard will it be for you to maintain that you know, air of uh, craftiness? You know, uh, another good question. I think um, fortunately for us, we're still each year growing and we have been growing for, you know, 15 years uh, or more than 15 years now. Uh, the last time we had a decrease was back in 1993. So, uh, so, but but for the last 15 years we've averaged 10% growth. And although the new lager beers do add um, to the volume, um, nonetheless the ales, the traditional ales, are still growing. So the pale ale is continuing to grow, as is the sparkling ale. And um, so, as a share of the total. Those two products still represent, um, uh, you know, about eighty uh, percent of of the volume, and um, so I don't think that's going to change too quickly, um, you know. And if you add stout on top of those two products, plus the mild, which is growing very strongly, then you know the naturally conditioned beers, I think, will continue to be. The, the, the you know lion's share of our business for some time to come, um, but it's uh, part of the enjoyment of the whole um, business that we're in that we are able to make these other products, and we know we recognise that um, some people uh, enjoy lager beer. You know, uh, Mick Sterenberg, who studied uh, brewing uh, with me in, in Birmingham. 
uh, he comments um, not unreasonably that in those countries where ale uh, does well, uh, like the UK and Belgium, you know, it's still um, you know maybe 20 or 30 percent of the overall volume. And in South Australia, we've got 20 percent of the volume. And in parts of northern New South Wales, you know, our salespeople up there tell us that we've got about 20 percent of the volume. So I think what we have to recognise, Matt, is that probably um, we might appeal to 20% of the population, you know, who are quite happy to drink the fuller-flavoured multi um, ales with their, their more estuary profile with the, the fruity floral characteristics. But, you know, um, maybe the majority of the population prefer a, a less... Um, uh, less challenging flavour profile, for want of a better way of describing it. No, I, I think that's a fairly good, a fairly fair way to describe it. Yeah. But it, it must be satisfying uh, because I know that uh, way back in the 70s, Cooper's first uh, introduced uh, lagering equipment, the uh, equipment required to make the lager beers, and you've never really found a niche um, within that market, to, so to have a beer that within you know twelve or eighteen months of its launch, it, it, it's it's got to eight percent of your uh, volume. It must be fairly satisfying, all the same. It, it is. Uh, that's right, and uh, so it's uh, certainly a very useful addition um, to uh, to the other products. Um, uh, the clear, uh, I think, you know, we we could have potentially brought it out a little bit earlier. Um, we agonised over uh, the concept of bringing out a low-carb uh, lager because, uh, you know, clearly for many of your listeners, you, you know, they they would consider it almost anathema for Coopers to bring out something like um, uh, uh, Coopers Clear. Um, but, uh, you know, we feel that... Uh, as we get bigger, we do need to cater for uh, various tastes. And I think w what we decided after probably a, a year and a half of agonising over whether we would um, produce the Coopers Clear, um, what we decided is that um, uh, producing a product like that, if we're going to do it, we need to make sure that it's some a, a useful offering in, in the sense that it's got some flavour. Um, it, it's got to meet the criteria in terms of being low carb, but it's got to have some flavour and it's got to have a sort of, um, uh, you know, point of difference about it so that um, people recognise that this is something which, you know, Coopers has produced and therefore is, is um, you know, a little bit more flavoursome and a little bit more... Um, you know, a little bit more interesting to drink than, than say, some of the competitor products. And, and I think we've achieved that with the Cooper's Clear. So I, I, I quite, I'm quite happy to, to drink it to, on occasions myself, and I find that once I do, I'm quite happy to have three or four of them, and I think that's always a good test. You've got you to try and produce a beer that's got a, which passes the drinkability test. So uh, I, think, I think in summary, Matt, you know... Um, Yes, we have to keep looking at these opportunities, and we 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 felt that the low carb part of the market was not going away, and uh, was uh, really uh, quite a um, solid part of the overall market, or what they now call uh, 
you know, new generation or whatever it is. You know, so um, I think it's important for us to have an offering in in major parts of the market as, as well as in our, uh, you know, sticking with our normal craft type beers. Yeah. I think, Tim, too, that uh, when, when Cooper's Clear first came out, I think there was probably a bit of a, a broad perception that it was a backward step for, for Cooper's, whereas I think certainly now I've, I've come to realise, and, and especially reading about it and now listening to what you've just said then, it's very much sort of, I guess, it's more forward thinking because uh, I, I, I can go back to, oh, I can almost put a date on it, but uh, it was about 1992, 1989, 92, when I first had what we call over here Cooper's Green, which uh, is called Cooper's Green everywhere in the country except in Adelaide, where it's referred to by its proper name of uh, <laughs> Cooper's Pale Ale. Um, yes. And so, and so, I appreciate now that there are there are people who were me back then now who are looking to get into something, and maybe they're not quite ready for a a bottle conditioned, you know, sediment uh, cloudy, flavourful sort of ale. But the Cooper's name and the distribution uh, that that you guys have the the luxury of. That, that a lot of the smaller ones don't means that those guys can perhaps come in and, and start off with a Cooper's Clear or a, uh, a 62 Pilsner and I guess then move up, you know, to sort of graduate through through the range. So uh, is that a fair sort of assessment that I, I, I think, think it was probably the way I, it was considered, so, but I think that's probably different. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, think it's, I think it's a very good way of expressing it. I, I said the same myself when we... Uh, when Glenn and I stood up in front of, I think, about five or 600 people when we launched the Cooper's Clear, I said at the, at the end of my little talk, having talked about the beer and what it represents and so forth, I said, and hopefully this is a stepping stone for people. You know, if uh, uh, people come to uh, like the Cooper's Clear because that's a, a transition for them uh, in terms of getting into, the, into uh, enjoying Cooper's products, they might have... Up until that point, been drinking uh, RTDs or you know cider or something else like that. Um, you know they might be able to um, enjoy the Cooper's Clear and then perhaps uh, happy to experiment with other Cooper's products later on. And I think I, I think you're dead right, Peter. I think you know for all of us, you know where our tastes change over time, and uh, you know something which we find uh, quite enjoyable and easy to to drink at one stage in life. We're, a bit later on, we, we're looking for something a little bit more meaningful and uh, a bit more uh, interesting. So uh, I, I, I agree. I think uh, hopefully the Cooper's Clear and the 62 represent good stepping stones for us uh, where, where people can uh, come to appreciate that uh, Cooper's makes products which are a little bit different and that, you know, hopefully if they uh, are happy to drink those ones, they might be happy to explore um, the rest of the range. It kind of leads in, Tim, to then this the the, the great Australian tradition of uh, you know chopping down the the tall poppy. Is Cooper's kind of I guess aware moving forward, and when you when you launch beers like this, and as you grow, that the bigger you get, the sort of I guess the bigger target you become, and and there's I guess a kind of a perception that the beers changed, and you know perhaps it's the the drinker's palate that's changed. Um, they're big now, so therefore they must be cutting corners to in order to do that. So therefore they're not what I you, you know how I used to feel about them. Are you are you sort of is that a challenge uh, to to sort of I guess deal with that? I look, um, uh, Peter. I've heard people say that about you know the the much larger breweries. I haven't heard them say it yet about us, uh, or not that they've said it to me anyway. Um, but <laughs> I, I think, uh, 
you know, hopefully our credentials remain untarnished despite uh, having the, the enjoying the growth that we have had. Um, because some of the things about, you know, the, as we all know, some of the things about our uh, naturally conditioned uh, products are so sort of uh, um, obvious and different. Um, it's hard to imagine people thinking that you know, uh, we're, we're sort of cutting corners or doing anything different. I mean, you know, uh, I, I um, you know, bang on about the fact that, uh, you know, the naturally conditioned products are 100% malt, apart from the stout where we, we've still got a, a very small amount, I think it's about 4% sugar still going into the stout, and that's only because it's a relatively high alcohol product. So uh, it's just to... Uh, help a little bit there and similarly with the vintage yep. I think that'd be rather challenging to produce uh, you know with, with, with no sugar but certainly the the sparkling and the pale um, you know when I first joined the brewery um, I, I don't think I'm saying too much to tell your listeners that um, you know we were doing the ales with about 18 percent uh, sugar 82 percent malt in terms of the um, contribution uh, from the grist and uh, uh, over time uh, in order to help flavor and in order to help uh, head retention and uh, and basically uh, I think in order to from my viewpoint in order to make the product as much of a, um, a nutritious product as possible you know we've made the, the change to make them a hundred percent malt brews and uh, so if anything, you know, we're probably moving in the opposite direction, you know, over a long period of time um, yep, yep. To, to other breweries that have I increased or, you know, used a large proportion of adjunct uh, because it's sort of more economical. Um, so one, you know, the 100% malt, we've still got the yeast in the beer, so of course they're not as attractive uh, as, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're quirky by nature in the sense that, you know, people say, well, why does it look like that? That doesn't look very nice. And I yeah. said, well, it's, we're, we're not making it for its aesthetics. Uh, we, you know, we, we know that lager beer possibly looks a lot nicer, uh, but uh, it's because it's, uh, it's it's got the benefits of uh, the yeast mopping up the oxygen, which gives it um, good longevity. And, uh, you know, it's a natural process where we don't inject any carbon dioxide into the beer um, you know, the carbon dioxide comes entirely from from the the, the fermentation. Uh, so, so they're all you know good elements to uh, keep on reminding people about um, uh, because uh, they 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 are um, they are uh, uh, it's it's a more um, uh, it's more prone to variation doing what we're doing. Uh, you know, whereas if you make lager beer and we make lager beer, you can produce um, a beer with precisely the right alcohol, with precisely the right colour, with precisely the right bitterness, because you can adjust all those things um, after fermentation. You know, you can uh, add more water, you can add more bitterness, whatever. And we do that, other people do that. But with the naturally conditioned beers, you you have to do everything uh, in the brew house, you have to, you know, you have to, uh, you know, create um, the the wort with the right gravity and, and with what you uh, uh, guess to be the right 
um, bitterness. Um, and, and then, of course, what you get at the end of fermentation and in the bottle is highly dependent on on uh, what happens in the primary and the secondary fermentations. It, it, it's interesting you say that, uh, Tim, because I, I know that uh, one of the things that your father did was move the brewing out of the old wooden puncheons um, uh, where, where the beers were traditionally. Um, am I right with that? He, he, uh, yeah, well, it was actually his first cousin, Maxwell. I mean, Bill was there um, uh, as managing director um, and uh, his background was more on in, in sales and marketing. Um, but his first cousin, Maxwell, also studied brewing at Birmingham University. Uh, back in the early 50s, and uh, um, Maxwell was the one who, uh, I mean, I think Bill and Maxwell uh, both worried about it, but Maxwell uh, was the one who, who investigated um, what uh, British ale producers were doing um, uh, and got advice from the um, Brewing Research Foundation and so forth. And uh, he, he decided that we could eliminate the punching system by introducing a, a centrifuge which of course was you know starting to be you know this is back in the 70s starting to be used in breweries uh, for yeast removal and so um, uh, yeah that's it Matt uh, we got out of the punchins then. Can you just quickly explain what the punchin system was for, yeah, for our listeners? Ab absolutely so um, up until 1980 when the system changed um, the uh, the the ale was fermented for the first two days in wooden vats, um, so uh, open fermenters, open round vats, and um, that was you know in the first, uh, as your listeners would know, in the first, especially if they're home brewers, the first couple of days is when the most heat's generated and you know there's the most vigorous part of the fermentation. Um, uh, and then after those first two days, the the uh, beer or the uh, you know very young beer uh, still in the process of fermenting um, was then um, uh, passed down to um, the puncheons, which were on the level below in the cellars, and these puncheons were uh, you know um, uh, 108 gallons um, and. Uh, the, the beer would continue to ferment uh, in these uh, puncheons uh, and uh, over about the next 10 to 12 days. Um, and the yeast, uh, because it's top fermenting, would rise to the top of the puncheon and come out a little bunghole, um, you know, which was facing upward. And in that bunghole was a sort of, um, uh, you know, a... Um, a metal dish uh, um, which would collect the yeast, and so then the um, uh, the uh, brew hands would cellar uh, uh, hands, I should say, uh, would go around to each of the puncheons, and they would collect that yeast, and then it would go into stainless steel um, uh, troughs uh, and be uh, uh, chilled and and uh, uh, kept for the next fermentation. So. The puncheon system had been developed presumably hundreds of years ago. I think uh, we read that uh, it dates back to something like the, uh, you know, there was a brewery in the 14th century, I think, 13th, 14th century in Oxford that was doing that uh, process. So it's a pretty old process. And, of course, it's a way that 
the brewers could collect their yeast for the next um, for the next brew. Um, so that was the main objective. Um, uh, you know, they'd top it up with a little bit more um, uh, beer all the time, so that um, uh, or, or fermenting fermenting beer to, from one punching to another, or uh, just to make sure that uh, the yeast would actually be able to be collected. And then at the end of that period of time, then of course it was all um, pumped to um, a receiving tank ready for bottling. And then of course. Um, uh, you know, the secondary fermentation would occur in the bottle after a small amount of sugar had been added. But there were so, quality yep. control issues. Uh, it was very yeah. hard to keep a brew consistent when you're using those traditional processes, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I can remember because uh, I was uh, just finishing off uni when the, the process changed and uh, before I went to the UK and uh, I remember people saying to me, what have Coopers done with the beer? Where's the sediment gone? You know, they'd, all, they'd be asking, where's the sediment? Because, of course, the sediment, prior to the introduction of the centrifuge, if you, and most of the bottles in those days, of course, were long necks, um, the sediment would be about an inch thick, uh, uh, you know, there or two centimetres thick down the bottom of the barrel, uh, down the bottom of the bottle, sorry. And so an enormous amount of sediment. Um, and then, of course... Uh, once we introduced the centrifuge, um, there was only a relatively, you know, much smaller amount of uh, yeast in the bottom of the bottle. So uh, <laughs> some of the old diehards were, were complaining that they weren't getting as much sediment as they used to. But people are very quick to uh, say whenever a change is made, it's, it's made essentially against the, the, the beer drinker and a, a change like that. Well, you know, Coopers is cutting corners, Coopers is doing it cheaper, Coopers is selling out. Uh, when that was a change that was made very much to improve the beer drinkers and experience, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was very much for quality. I mean, you know, um, the the you know, it's fair to say the punching system was labour intensive. I think each shift had something like uh, twelve people involved with uh, moving the punchings, cleaning the punchings, and so forth and so on. Um, but I think uh, uh, you know the yeast uh, was. Uh, probably much more uh, subject to um, potential infection that way, and uh, and also um, you know you'd get more batch to batch variation, I'm sure, or punching to punching variation, put it that way, you know, and uh, um, and it was good also to get rid of the uh, wooden bats, which we did back in '88. Finally, I think it was before I joined the brewery in 1990, um, because uh, you know, having open fermentation is, is also uh, a little bit subject to, uh, you know, to, to problems as well. So you're right, Matt. I mean, it's good. It's, you, you know, one has to uh, sort of reflect on uh, why you do things. And, of course, those sorts of changes um, really all, all aided the consistency and the quality of the product. Now, following on from that... Um one of the things that Coopers has faced in a business sense has been the uh, the vagaries of fashion where Coopers, because it's a very uh, peculiar style of beer in uh, you know, Australian lager terms, um, it, it tends to suffer a bit of faddishness, doesn't it, where one generation drinks it and then the, the, the next generation see it as a bit of an old man's beer and uh, move away. 
Is, is that you know, a correct assessment? I, I, definitely the viewpoint um, uh, in 1990 when I joined the brewery. I think there was a, a tremendous concern uh, when I joined the brewery that the older generation would die off and who would, be buy, who would buy our beer next, you know, who would be drinking it next. And um, hence why we experimented with some filtered ales in the early 90s or the mid early to mid-90s. And we also focused on the lager beers. We were, you know, we'd introduced uh, Cooper's Draft in 88 and that, that got off to a pretty good start. And so it was, um, you know, I think possibly the second or third largest seller in, in for part of the 90s uh, before Pal Al started to take off in the, from the mid-90s onwards. But, you know, I, I, I think the changing, the changing taste from one generation to the next is an interesting uh, fact, or ch- changing attitude is probably more it. You know, you know uh, uh, Bill used to say it in, in his talks as well, you know, that it's, it's, I, I, don't drink, I don't drink the beer that Dad drank, you know, I want to drink something different, you know. But whether that's, you know, Matt and Peter, whether that's something which we still need to worry about, I don't know. I mean, because we've now had ongoing growth for so many years, you know, you'd have to think that um, really we're almost getting now to the stage where another generation is is, is discovering the beer uh, but you know nothing's changed in between. So, in other words, the people who discovered it in the early 90s, um, you know, almost would be getting to the point that their sons might be drinking it, or their children might be drinking it. You know, in the in, the, in 2012, but possibly a bit too early yet. But uh, um, interesting to reflect upon. But at the moment, we don't see any any downturn uh, in the in the enjoyment of the naturally conditioned beers, whereas definitely. There was a concern in the late in in the eighties that that might happen. Tim, I wouldn't also discount uh, the value of the marketing strategy, particularly the, uh, the the billboard advertising and the the bus stop advertising. Uh, I, I assume it's the same in South Australia as it is over here. They're certainly yeah. eye catching. They're quirky. They're simple, and I think that speaks to a bit of a timelessness. I don't know. That's probably a wanky marketing term or something. But and I'm sure there's a lot of thought behind it. Uh, but they're they're simple. They're catch They're not sort of you, you don't see it aimed at. Here's a bunch of young people going out to you know and drink Coopers. It's just here's the product. Here's our heritage. Trust us, kind of thing. Yes. Oh, you know you've summarised it very well, Peter. And I should reflect more on the marketing side. I, I probably talk too much about the, um, uh, the 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 beer quality side because that's the background that I have. But certainly, you know, uh, tremendous work uh, was done in support of the brand uh, from the mid-90s onwards uh, through KWP, uh, Andrew Killey and Peter Withy, uh, to um, uh, advertising gurus in Adelaide who formerly were with Clemenger and then started their own business uh, back in the early 90s, and we've been using them ever since. Um, And they came up with the cloudy but fine uh, ad campaign when they were still working at Clemenger's. And, and then they've subsequently come up with, uh, as you say, lots of quirky um, uh, phrases and um, uh, lines, which which sort of 
you know, catch people's uh, attention, um, you know, brewed by beer nuts and under old management and uh, the family liquid assets. And Fam if, it's, if it's not at your local... The family jewels, house, I think, was the classic. The family jewels, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, and and you know the two taps, the love handles, and uh, you know uh, lots of lots of um, funny ads, um, which which they've done very well for us uh, with. And and I agree with you. Uh, I, I prefer to see more of the advertising dollar go uh, in in the in the billboards and the and the street signs and so forth because that does seem to be a very good way. For us to communicate with the market, and uh, we never, you know, it's it's unlikely that we can afford much in the way of television advertising, and I don't think we need to. I think that would that would that does make us seem too much uh, like mainstream. So I think I think it's much better to do what we do do and and um, uh, focus on on um, uh, you know uh, keeping that uh, that the heritage aspect uh, up and um, and also. Um, uh, what we call our master brand strategy, uh, which is to keep focusing on on the naturally conditioned ales, particularly ale and pale ale, and uh, and emphasising uh, the, the 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 quality and the difference and and the authenticity and so forth uh, behind the brand. It's interesting you say that, uh, Tim, because I noted uh, I think 18 months ago when you took the naming sponsorship rights at the Adelaide Food and Wine Festival. Um, admittedly, you just launched Clear, but that was the beer that you chose to to showcase. When I would have thought perhaps some of your traditional ales might have been the ones to showcase in a food and wine environment. Mm, good, good, interesting comment. I'll take that on board. I'll discuss that with the marketing. I was just sort of wondering whether there was a thought process behind that. Uh, um, not that I'm aware of, and and um, uh, um, you know. Um, uh, so, so that's a, that's a learning point for me. Maybe, maybe that's uh, something we should think about as well, because uh, you know you got to you got to think what's right for um, uh, you know people who 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 go to different events. What what are they most likely to 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 want to see and experience? Uh, we, we put out on Twitter before um, one of these new social networking uh, tools. Um, that we were speaking to you and asked uh, for some questions. And the, the the recurring theme that seems to have come back is, is Cooper's going to do uh, you know, some seasonal beers or more annual beers like your excellent uh, Cooper's Vintage? Um, well, uh, again, uh, it's a good question because we've been talking about it uh, internally. You know, we... I've resisted the concept of doing too many different beers only because um, I, I think, you know, one, we have some challenges, uh, uh, you know, as to how you sell those products. Do you sell them through the independent channels? Do you sell them through the national retailers? Um, if you sell products through the national retailers, normally they like to see the products being available you know, on an ongoing basis. And, of course, as you and your listeners know, the national retailers now represent something like 50% of the, uh, the off-premise uh, beer in Australia now. So, so that's something that has to be taken into account. But um, uh, if, we, if we take a slightly broader view and think, are we happy to 
create different craft beers, um, then, you know, as a, as a team, we've decided that we are happy to do that. Um, but we will just do it, you know, cautiously because, um, you know, the cost of introducing um, new beers is not inconsiderable. We, you know, we, we um, uh, to give you an example, where uh, with the uh, celebratory ale uh, that we're going to launch in a, a month or two or a couple of months, um, you know, we, we're, we've chosen a new label uh, die line for that and to change that on the labeler um, is around $160,000 of change parts. Um, now, if you're a smaller, uh, you know, brewer, you know, with a, with a slower packaging line, then those sorts of changes aren't so expensive. So, I mean, we, we do have to recognise that there are, there are some challenges to changing products in too many different ways. Um, from, the, from the beer perspective, you know, many people ask us about, well, you know, is it a problem to create different beers? I mean, I think that's the part that we probably enjoy the most and we would be happy to keep on trying different things. It's just the reality of, you know, creating packaging materials and um, having the right uh, equipment um, or parts on the equipment to be able to, to run new products, and then and then and then you know how do you actually bring them to market? Which channel are you going to go through to sell them? So, um, bit of a long-winded answer, and too many of my and, answers are long-winded. But it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it sounds like there are challenges uh, in being big as there are in being small. I think so. You know, I think we, you know, you're dead right because I think uh, you, you, you know, we're, I think we're, we're, fortunately, we're not so big that we can, we can still be flexible. We can still make a decision, oh, let's do this, let's do that, um, uh, but, uh, and turn a new product around in, in a few months. Um, but, you know, you have to, you have to realise that, you know, we realise that as we get bigger uh, and you're, you're trying to do things on a bigger scale, then it does take um, much more careful planning um, than perhaps what we would have done, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when we might have just thought, oh, well, let's just try that and, you know, uh, here's what the design will look like, here's what the beer might be like and, you know, let's launch it in, you know, uh, you know, now we now we have to think about it a, a, a fair bit more. Um, we're not probably so um, uh, cautious that we we test out different uh, imagery and uh, test out different flavours on sort of focus groups or anything because I think you know that that, that can be helpful from time to time. But you know, uh, most of what we do we do as a result of sort of internal discussion. Uh, amongst ourselves, but um, nonetheless, you're right, Matt. We do have to uh, realise that it's it's uh, as you get bigger, there are certain limitations from uh, you know preventing you from from doing too many different things that you might otherwise like to do. For what it's worth, the feedback seems to be uh, that people would very much like to see Coopers do an IPA. An IPA. Well, that's that's good good feedback because we've got, we've got uh, still time to. Um, fine-tune the product that we will do for our celebratory ale so we can 
we can maybe think about making that as much of an IPA as possible, which would be a nice thing to do. You've mentioned the celebratory uh, beer. Now, that's to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the brewery. Can you tell us anything about that, or is it still very much under discussion? It's still very much under discussion. Uh, what I can tell you is that um, it uh, is going to be 5.2% alcohol because we, in order to get our packaging materials uh, ready, we have to um, you know, decide that in advance. And it will be... Uh, a product with a uh, with a, a nice red hue, uh, you know, not not as dark as a, a dark ale, but certainly um, you know a little bit a uh, little bit darker than than say sparkling ale for sure. But um, and it will be a naturally conditioned uh, product as well. So um, there are certain things that we will that we have already decided, and there are other things that we still are yet to decide. And we, we've probably got about another month. Uh, in order to uh, uh, think about those things finally. But we, we thought this would be an opportunity with the Celebration Ale to to um, test out a, a new flavour profile. And if it sells reasonably well, then then that might well represent, uh, like your listeners uh, suggesting, an IPA which we could keep as a, as a uh, regular product going forward. Pete, did you have anything... Yeah, I had a, there was another question too. Uh, let's see, from uh, Thirsty in Melbourne, which is a guy down here called uh, Cornelius Frank. Uh, Cooper's Black came out a little while ago, which uh, from memory was the Cooper's Best Extra Stout aged for 18 months. Would that be on the cards or is that just kind of one of those things that 18 months is, is a long time in a brewery as you sort of, uh, I guess, become more successful and, and more beholden to... Um, you know, the vagaries of, of packaging lines and all those sorts of things, as you've just discussed. Yeah, uh, another good question, Pete, because uh, it, it's another one that's topical for us. We used to do, um, your listener, uh, Cornelius, may be speaking about the special old stout that we did, and that was an aged product. Um, we, I think we used to, we, we said that was aged for at least six months, and a lot of it was um, 12 months by the time it was sold. Um, yep. uh, my mother in particular really liked the special old stout and she was very disappointed <laughs> when, when we made the decision to uh, cease it but we got down to just doing two brews a year and um, I was anxious that uh, maybe the, um, the sales uh, staff around the country had too many products to sell um, so you know we made the decision to cease the special old stout but I think I think it's one that many people do ask about, and it's one that we've, we, of course, can brew at a different alcohol strength. So we'd kept the special old stout up at 6.8%, um, and I think uh, it's one that we would like to think about doing again if we continue, if, if we do this range of products, um, you know, following on from the Celebration Ale. So it's, it's certainly... In, in in our thoughts to to reintroduce that, but uh, again, it will, we'll have to have a bit more internal debate and discussion about it. Just quickly, Tim, I've just received uh, a very special guest guest uh, gift from a, a good friend of the program. A couple of bottles of um, the uh, the vintage ale, but I've just noticed the date on them is 1999. Should I throw those out? Well, that <laughs> Pete, you need to know. Well, I mean, you'll you'll quickly know when you open it. Uh, 
you know, how well it's been uh, kept. I mean, I've had in recent, you know, like in the last year, um, examples of 98, 99 and 2000. And if, if they've been stored in relatively cool conditions, they can still be quite drinkable. You know, if, of course, they've sustained any heat, uh, then, of course, they become... Uh, less drinkable, so um, yeah. you know, too too much. I mean, it's nice to have some of the toffee character, but you don't want too much, and you certainly don't want the sort of oxidised characters that come, the, the other oxidised characters that come through uh, after a period of time. So, uh, yeah, I think you're going to have to put it in the fridge, and then uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe it'd be a good one to put in the fridge, standing up, and then just decant it, and then see how it comes out. I did get to try a bottle of the 99 last year, actually, and uh, the, the carbonation had fallen away a little bit and all of those oxidized characters. It was a very interesting uh, experience. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I loved it because one of the uh, it, it's one of the highlights of my beer year every year, and I'm a huge fan of the vintage. And I encourage people at all of my tasting classes that they should go out and buy themselves a carton so they can build what I call the Cooper's Time Machine, where... You know, they, they drink maybe a six-pack in the first year and then put it in the coolest part of their house. And then, you know, after three or four years, they've got their own vertical tasting where they can taste the uh, the, the, the changes. Oh, you're, you're a good supporter, Matt. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> nice. we, we, we were just drinking where the, the brewing team and I were drinking vintage yesterday because we were uh, uh, looking at our um, uh, samples that would go into the next um, Australian Beer Awards and... Uh, 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 the uh, vintage we only had, of course we only had the one example which is last year's vintage but uh, it was still uh, very easy to drink and uh, very very much uh, a delight for, for later on in the afternoon it, it, It's a good example of a beer that does change because I remember that the 2010 for example was probably the, uh, the, the, the gentlest of the recent vintages where in its year of drinking the bitterness probably wasn't quite as assertive upon release um but whereas the uh 2009 uh in 2010 was much smoother and it mellowed very nicely but it had had a sort of a, a much more aggressive bitterness up front or a, a much more um a slightly rougher bitterness up front so it, it's a really interesting to see how the beer comes out of the brewery uh, year upon year and you know that's one of the challenges matt because um uh you know, we know now from doing our own longevity studies that um, the bitterness units drop by about four over the period of a year. So, you know, something which starts off at, uh, you know, 40 uh, after a year, uh, you know, is, is slightly less challenging at 36, you know, or, you know, 36 down to 32, for instance. So, um, so it's a good point that you make. And um, sometimes... Uh, you know, when we first taste them, they can, you know, you, the, 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 the alcohol can be a little bit uh, obvious and the bitterness can be a little bit obvious. But, you know, those those characters, you know, those flavor um, components do sort of ease over time and, and uh, produce a sort of more balanced product after a while. And that's one of my favorite parts of the beer because it, it, it does do that. And that's why I encourage people to to get it because it's a it's an education in a bottle as, as they watch it age over 12 and 18 and 24 months um, and it goes so nicely with food as well oh no thank you for saying so no, that's great 
Now, we've only got you for a few more minutes, so uh, I just wanted to... Pete, did you have anything before I had a, a last couple of questions? No, I had everything covered. Tim, it is the 150th year, so I'll, I'll throw a couple of very quick questions at you that are no doubt <laughs> the, the, the sort of things you hate having to single one thing out. But uh, if you had to name one achievement for the brewery uh, over 150 years, what do you think that would be? I think... Um... The, the biggest challenge that we got through successfully um, was building the new brewery and then relocating from Leebrook down to Regency Park and still uh, with different equipment and uh, new equipment um, make a product that uh, still has all the credentials and respects the heritage of, of the Cooper's um, uh, Cooper's Brewing tradition. So I think that was, to my mind, the biggest challenge that the company's uh, been through in, in a physical sense. Um, uh, and, you know, I was delighted that we got through it uh, as we did. I mean, we had some challenges, uh, you know, in the process, but uh, I would say shifting the brewery was, uh, was our biggest challenge. I think, um, you know, if, if you talk, if you talk about from a financial point of view, what my father and uh, Maxwell went through in the 70s was probably a bigger challenge. Uh, you know, they were equally as big. You know, the, the company nearly went bankrupt in the in the mid 70s uh, for a number of reasons, which which uh, related to you know the, the the price that could be charged at the time when it was under prices justification and and excise going up and the they'd spent the money on getting into lager beer so they they nearly lost the brewery then and um, uh, you know that was only eased by getting into home brew so uh, uh, getting into home brew saved the company's bacon basically back in the late 70s from otherwise what it might have been the the end of uh, the company after 110 years or 115 years. Um, uh, and then, of course, we talked about the Lion Nathan battle more recently. But, uh, um, you know, uh, but I, I, I think building the new brewery and, and shifting here was probably the biggest uh, challenge for us. Do you have a uh, highlight during your time as uh, managing director of the, of the, of the brewery? Um, I think the highlight for me has, uh, you know, apart from getting through the Lion Nathan battle, which I think, you know, is, is more a sort of survival thing as opposed to a highlight, um, the highlight probably was, was starting premium beverages. And, um, uh, you know, Bruce Siney, I, I, I always uh, say quickly that it wasn't my idea. Uh, it was uh, um, serendipity for the company that Bruce Siney came along uh and uh, he had uh, the rights for Budweiser in Australia and, and a small sales team. And he, he and as a former Foster's marketing um, director and international director, he, he had a wealth of experience. And he said, Tim, I think I can do a better job selling your beer outside of South Australia and Northern Territory than what you and your team are doing. So why don't you let me try and sell it for you? So... Um, uh, and and he's got the runs on the board, um, uh, um, uh, Matt and Peter. He's uh, he uh, grew the volume in 2002 uh, when it was eight and a half million litres 
to now this year premium beverages, of which we own 80%, um, will be just shy of 40 million litres. So it's a tremendous um, uh, focused effort on growing our geographic you know, distribution, uh, concentrating on good sales representation and trying to maintain price stability in the market so that people know that they've got a value proposition. That actually brings in one uh, question that you touched on a little bit before, and I might, uh, just before we say goodbye, go back to that, and that was the uh, difficulty in selling with such a highly concentrated retail environment. I know that Coopers has struggled in the past with uh, your beers like your most popular pale ale being heavily discounted in uh, Dan Murphy's and those sorts of places, and uh, selling it probably at a price below that which you would like to see it. How difficult is it um, for, for Coopers to, to manage its affairs when your destiny is so much in the hands of uh, two big retailers? I, I think, you know, we could we could live with most things. I think you've touched on a point there, uh, Matt. I think the, the frustration is seeing it sold below wholesale price, you know, because it, it upsets the other retailers because the independent retailers say, well, how come, the, how come I could go to one or other of these uh, large groups and uh, I could buy the beer more cheaply than what I can buy it from you for? You know, so you've got that challenge on the one hand that you, you have the ever-present challenge of um, trying to reassure, um, you know, the, the independent trade. And also, when when the beer gets sold below wholesale price, then people get confused as to the consumer gets confused as to what the true value of the product is, you know. And, and I think that's the thing that we find um, uh, difficult because it, it's much better if the product sells within a small band of, you know, say the pale ale sells from sort of. 42 to 46 or something like that you know people can people can forgive or accept small variations but when they see it suddenly do a dive down to 38 or something like that then they think wow what's going on here and I must be getting ripped off when I'm paying 46 that doesn't make any sense to me you know maybe I have to think about what else I want to buy you know so they're very they are very challenging questions and it's um it's a difficult area to talk about and uh, and to know how to to see uh, improvements in it going forward you know and i guess we we're right up against uh, the, the the time that we've got so there are a whole range of other issues i'd love to discuss about the australian beer market but we might have to save those for another podcast uh, tim I'd look forward to it matt that'll be very good Tim, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for uh, taking the time to speak to us and uh, you know, answer our, our questions so fully. Um, congratulations on your 150th year. Um, you, you've got your, your beer coming out. There's an excellent book that was released, uh, I think, 15, 10 years ago for the 140th. Um, an old ale. I'm trying to think of the I've got it on my bookshelf, but I just can't see it from here. Jolly good um, ale and old. Jolly Good Ale and Old, is that being updated and yes. released uh, this, this year? Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, um, Rob Lynn is uh, um, adding to the work that Alison Painter did. And um, we're going through that with him uh, to uh, 
you know, provide as much information as possible for him to make it a good read. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to having that later in the year, which would be good. Are there any other events we should be looking out for to celebrate the 150th? We're going to, uh, you know, um, uh, Glenn and I will uh, try and get around to all the states, to uh, all the mainland states anyway, to... Uh, 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 you know, do um, events with the with the trade and um, uh, with the journalists. So, uh, you know, we're we're looking to do one in Brisbane where you are, Matt, and uh, one in Melbourne um, where Peter is, and uh, and probably one in Perth as well uh, in August. So, we're, I think we're going to do Brisbane and Melbourne in um, July, and Sydney. And events already been planned for late uh, June. So. I think we'll be broadcasting this a little bit more as, as time draws on and we've, we've finalised what we're actually doing. Wonderful. Well, congratulations once again and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Matt. Good to speak to you and good to speak to you too, Peter. No worries at all. Thanks, Tim. All the best. There you go, Prof. Mate, that was the first time you've had the chance to speak to uh, Tim, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As I, you know, uh, obviously uh, had an interest in uh, his work. Uh, and have seen pieces that you've done, you know, interviews with him and lots of things. But yeah, great to to actually speak to. Him. And and even though it's you know one in Adelaide, mean uh, where am I, Melbourne, and you're up in Brisbane. But it, it just it, it really did sort of feel like we were just sort of sitting across a bar having a bit of a chat. Yeah, and he just answers your questions. And the thing I like about it most is, you know, Cooper's being the having the place that the role that it has in Australian brewing. You know, the, 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 I think the first time I ever heard anybody say, oh, they've sold out or they've, you know, they, they've changed the recipe um, was about Cooper's. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, uh, I would have been you know, 15 or 16 and uh, it would have, you know, 50 year old back then. So that's, uh, you know, that person would be uh, 70 or 80 now um, talking about how Cooper's isn't what it once was. Um, yeah. And you hear it and... and, and I think there is something about us that we suspect that as companies get bigger, they automatically cut corners, and you know it's it's all about screwing the public. Um, yeah, but, yeah, selling and, out and selling out. But you, yeah, you, yeah, you speak to Tim, and you you, you learn that you know the, these punchins that they used to have were fantastic and they were very traditional, but it meant that you know beer was variable. They had all sorts of problems, so the costs were up in the sense that they were wasting a lot of beer. Not that you know the the, the costs were cut to cut costs it was just trying to make beer more consistent um and you know a better experience for for beer drinkers um same with the the hose and you know when, when they change their brewery and uh, there, there's a lot of modernization that goes on in a brewery that's 150 years old and it's not all bad um exactly i think that's the point yeah it's um you know bigger is not necessarily better uh and at the end of the day you know we talk about brands and we talk about marketing and all that sort of thing uh, at the end of the day, what's in the bottle? That's exactly. And, you know, for people that talk about traditional brewing process, brewers today that talk about traditional brewing processes, um, if you're really going to be get traditional, you're going to be brewing, you know, a genuine uh, stone beer like the guys at Stone and Wood sort of do. Because if you're brewing yep. traditionally, you're doing it over a fire that you can't get the... Brew, brewing yeah. liquid up to boiling, so you have to throw hot rocks in, you know, and and, and you also you also better serve it in a, a stone, leather, pewter, ceramic, or wooden vessel because it's going to be murky and cloudy and smelly and 
<laughs> you don't want to look at it. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to serve and, you. And, and don't bother ordering yeast um, from a, a yeast bank because that's not traditional. <laughs> traditional is using a stick that you that is coated with yeast from your last yeah. couple of brews that you stir the mash with to into uh, you know uh, inoculate your uh, you work so anyway yeah, Matt, exactly. we, we've already done one uh, uh, <laughs> WTF and uh, we, we're certainly coming up I think this is going to be our longest podcast yet so we might uh, um, sign out just a very quick plug uh, listeners don't forget next uh, Tuesday night we've got a podcast in the pub with Charlie Bamforth um, these are issues that if you've got a what the froth that you want to raise. Charlie is the man um, to do it with. It's only $11. You're going to get a couple of free beers courtesy of uh, sponsors Thunder Road. Um, and I don't want to hear anyone saying that it's not the you get to be part of- craftiest, craftiest beer going because it's a, it's actually the perfect beer. I approached Thunder Road to uh, sponsor this because this is the sort of beer that is perfect for Charlie um, because he doesn't like the triple IPAs that blow your head off and he's all about quality and uh, all about consistency and uh, it, it is a sort of beer that fits perfectly into that range so uh, I'm looking forward to it so $11 yeah. have a beer with Charlie record a podcast with us um, and uh, basically just have a very relaxed night drinking great beer so Prof uh, anything that you want to sign out with? No, no that, 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 that covers the lot let's let the listeners get home to bed or um, uh, you know get home from the station or whatever because we, we, they probably already had to stay on an extra couple of <laughs> Yeah, they stops. had to stay on and catch the train back. To get to the end. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Thanks for, your, thanks for your patience, listener. Good. Well, hopefully they were as riveted as we were uh, doing the interview. But, yes, the, the band struck up. Yeah. Um, last last week's was a cracker. That was insane. That was kind of... Um, I, 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 it was funny. I loved it. So, well... So more of the same. More of we'll the same. We'll see what we can do, Prof. Uh, always good to talk to you. Look forward to having a beer with you while we record the next podcast next week. And uh, listeners, thank you for your support. Uh, love your work. Talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers. Bye. There's a garden. What a garden. Only happy faces bloom there. And there's never any room there for a worry or a gloom there. Oh, there's music and there's dancing and a lot of sweet romancing. When they play a polka, they all get in the swing every time they hear that umpa Everybody feels so tra-la-la.